1: This is Cornerstone Connection, the radio ministry of Pastor Gary Hamrick of Cornerstone Chapel in Leesburg, Virginia. Pastor Gary is teaching through Romans.
0: love is
1: calling, opens up your eyes. Mercy is you with
2: every sunrise. You know, there's going to be times where Paul is in prison, and, and Paul is in chains. Uh, not on this occasion, this is the end of his third missionary journey, but he always has this perspective that no matter what his circumstance, he's not a slave to anything or anyone except the Lord, that he is a willing servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a doulos. He is a servant of Jesus Christ, and he's called. He's not hired. He's not appointed. He's called to be an apostle, the Greek word apostolos, meaning one who was sent out.
1: Today, Pastor Gary will share with you about the incredible story of Paul and one lesson we can learn from his story. Throughout Paul's story, after his conversion, he was imprisoned. And how did Paul react to being imprisoned and likely treated horribly? He continued to praise God despite his circumstances. He continued to be a witness to those whom he could speak to. And this lesson is one we can benefit from. No matter what our circumstances might be, we can always continue to praise God. At the close of Pastor Gary's message today, I'll be sharing with you how you can get a copy of today's broadcast of Cornerstone Connection. Subscribe to the podcast or get in touch with us. But for now, let's join Pastor Gary in the book of Romans chapter 1 with today's edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: Romans chapter 1. We're going to start a new book study. Romans chapter 1. Yeah, exciting. Always exciting to start a new book study. So, the book of Romans chapter 1. Let me give a bit of an introduction to this book, as we always do when we start a new book together. And this introduction might go longer than others normally will. So, Lord willing, we get through chapter 1 tonight. But for those of you who like to take notes, the author of this book is Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit. And the date of it uh, was written somewhere around 57 to 58 AD while Paul was in Corinth at the end of his third missionary journey. This letter is written to the church at Rome, which was not founded by Paul. Now, this is an interesting thing. Most of the epistles that Paul writes are written, in fact, all except with the exception of Romans, written to uh, either challenge or encourage Uh, those fellowships that he has been instrumental in planting. Uh, This is an exception. Paul did not found the church at Rome. He is writing from Corinth at the end of the third missionary journey because if you remember from our study in the book of Acts that the Lord had told Paul that he must go to Rome back in Acts chapter 19, but in Acts chapter 21 it says that he's going to encounter great hardship and trouble when he gets to Rome. So when he's in Corinth, he doesn't even know if he's ever going to get there. I mean, he doesn't know what awaits him except only hardship and difficulties. And so anticipating that he may never even see them, he writes this letter from Corinth to strengthen and encourage the church that has formed there in Rome. And uh, the church that has formed here in Rome is both a combination of Jews and Gentiles. So it was both Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ but we're going to find here that this letter is somewhat of an instructional letter because a lot of times when Paul otherwise writes epistles, he's writing to you know the people that he knows. And, and it's, it's obvious here that he knows people because by the 16th chapter, he's going to list a lot of names that he personally knows. But he is writing from the vantage point of instructing them in the event that he never has the opportunity to come in person and instruct them in matters of theology and doctrine. So that's why this book is heavy in relation in regards to theology and in regards to doctrine. Now, theology is the study of theos, God. And the word God, his name is mentioned 153 times in the book of Romans. This is a book about God. On average, every 46 words, you have the name of God. So throughout this book, very heavily oriented towards who God is, uh, mentioned 153 times. The word law is mentioned 72 times. Christ mentioned by name 65 times. Sin is mentioned 48 times. Uh, Lord is mentioned 43 times. And faith, which is a major theme in this book as well, is mentioned 40 times. So Romans deals with many different themes, but as much as a book can be, this is a book really about God. Now, as far as the main theme goes, the main theme of the book of Romans is the gospel. Now, we throw that word around. We talk about the gospel, the four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Really, all of it is the gospel in the sense that the Greek word gospel is euangelion, and euangelion just means good news or good message. So all of the Bible is good news, it's a good message, but that that exact word gospel uh, Paul uses 12 times throughout the book of Romans, and half of those times is in here in chapter 1. So he's emphasizing the good news, the euangelion of, of who God is and the message of salvation. 12 times he uses that word, and he consistently addresses three main things or three main themes. One, God's righteousness. Two, man's sinfulness. And three, salvation by faith. Now, that last part is particularly important because historically, this book has really changed the course of the church. This particular book was absolutely instrumental in changing the heart of one Martin Luther from being a devout Catholic monk whose entire life was devoted to penance and good works in order to try to be right before God after reading Romans, realizing that justification is by faith, not of works. And in 1515, after reading this book, Martin Luther was so convinced that salvation was by faith and not by works, as his Catholic background had taught him, as many of your Catholic backgrounds have taught you, that it spawned the Protestant Reformation. When Luther began to understand salvation by grace through faith, uh, which is counter to the Catholic doctrine of salvation through good works and penance, it, it was it was life-changing. And as a result, the Protestant Reformation emerged. And friends, we're basically here as part of a, the Protestant Reformation because of the Book of Romans. Because in large part, God moved the heart of Martin Luther to revolt against the doctrine of works as the method of salvation and understanding faith as the method of salvation. And so so here we are. This is what Martin Luther said when he had this epiphany through the book of Romans. He said, quote, I greatly longed to understand Paul's epistle to the Romans and nothing stood in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Because I took it to mean that righteousness whereby God is righteous and deals righteously in punishing the unrighteous, night and day I pondered, Until I grasped the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy, he justifies us by faith. Thereupon, I felt myself to be reborn and to have gone through open doors into paradise. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven, end quote. And so it changed his life. Now, about almost 200 years later in 1738, There was a young, distraught, and uh, feeling defeated like a failure missionary by the name of John Wesley, who went to a Bible study that was through the book of Romans, and after he read some of the notes from Martin Luther in his epiphany after having studied the book of Romans, John Wesley said this in 1738, quote, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone, for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken my sins away, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. You can read some other things that Augustine wrote as well in the mid-4th century A.D., just about how the book of Romans was life-altering for him as well. So while some of this is going to be you know, kind of doctrinally thick, this is a book that has significantly influenced the lives of many profound people, and the result of which is, you know, here we are hundreds of years later, a byproduct of some of these guys like Martin Luther and John Wesley and some other key early fathers of the faith where the book of Romans was eye-opening and life-changing for them. A key verse in the book of Romans, Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. We'll talk about that as we get through chapter 1, hopefully tonight. A little bit more about some of these terms here. And Now, this is going to get heady a little bit, but we'll break all this stuff down we go through the book of Romans. But it is so rich in theology and doctrine that we're going to find throughout Romans that some of the specific theological topics that Paul addresses include... God's wrath in chapter 1, the universality of sin in chapter 3, justification, what does that even mean, that word, we'll talk about that when we get also into chapter 3, the security of salvation in chapter 5, he talks about sanctification between chapters 6, 7, and 8, he talks about election, a doctrine that has divided a lot of fellowships in chapter 9. He talks about God's plan for Israel in chapter 11, spiritual gifts in chapter 12, and principles of Christian liberty through chapter 14 and 15. And here's an interesting footnote to the book of Romans. 100 years ago, roughly, the book of Romans was required reading at Stanford University Law School because of the eloquent way that Paul makes a logical, legal argument about doctrine. The way that Paul discourses throughout this book And the way that he is so skilled in explaining deep, profound truths became the textbook for students at Stanford University Law School 100 years ago. Now, not anymore, but it was in the day regarded as instrumental in helping attorneys to begin to articulate deep and profound legal matters and to argue in a way that was intelligent and eloquent. Paul set the example here. Even Stanford University followed it years ago. Also, now, as we think about the book of Romans, let's frame the context as well regarding the city of Rome, just so we understand uh, who he's writing to here and what's going on in Paul's day. Rome, of course, was the capital and most important city of the Roman Empire, founded in 753 BC, but not mentioned in the Bible until the New Testament. There's no reference to Rome in the Old Testament. Located along the banks of the Tiber River, about 15 miles from the Mediterranean Sea, And in Paul's day, the city had a population of over 1 million people, many of whom were slaves. So here's this church within the city of Rome, bustling city, a million people, this church made up of both Jews and Gentiles, a church that Paul didn't start, but a church that he's concerned about, that he loves, and so he's writing all this doctrine and theology in the event that he never gets to see him. Now, he will end up getting to Rome, but not so much to be a part of ministering to the church at Rome, but it'll be in Rome where he's executed under the hand of Nero when Nero has him beheaded. So this is still 57, 58 AD, thereabouts. This is about when he writes this letter, he has been a Christian now for about 20 to 25 years. And so as he writes the book of Romans, uh, let's look here in chapter 1, verse 1, and make our way through here. And take a look at uh, his instruction here to the church at Rome. First of all, he says in verse one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. So there's a mouthful already in verse one. He is, he identifies himself as a servant. The Greek word is doulos. It is the way he begins his letter to the Galatians and the Philippians. Galatians 1.1, Philippians 1.1, he refers to himself as a servant, a doulos. You know, there's going to be times where Paul is imprisoned and, and Paul is in chains. Uh, Not on this occasion, this is the end of his third missionary journey, but he always has this perspective that no matter what his circumstance, he's not a slave to anything or anyone except the Lord, that he is a willing servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is a doulos, he is a servant of Jesus Christ, and he's called. He's not hired, he's not appointed, he's called to be an apostle, the Greek word apostolos, meaning one who was sent out. And set apart for the gospel, there's that Greek word euangelion, for the gospel, the good news of God. Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures regarding his son, who is, as to his human nature, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, so he begins by reminding the the, uh, the church that that Jesus was promised by the prophets in the holy scriptures. So everything in the Old Testament was pointing to and leading up to the revelation of Christ regarding his son, who, notice again in verse 2, as to his human nature, a descendant of David. So he's going to speak here about the proof of Jesus' humanity, and then he also adds the proof of his divinity, all in this verse. The proof of his humanity was that he was a descendant of David, and the proof of his divinity was that through power, he was declared to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. It's interesting, too, the word declared there in verse 4, and who through the Spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God. The word declared in the Greek is horizo. We get our English word horizon. Horizon is the line that is the furthest visible thing that separates heaven and earth. And it is the true line of demarcation between heaven and earth. And so in that sense, Jesus is the true line of demarcation here about what is true and what is right, that he is, in fact, As According to his human nature, descendant of David, according to his divinity, he was raised from the dead with the power of God, and he is Jesus Christ our Lord. And he says in verse 5, "...through him and for his name's sake we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith, and you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ." Verse 7, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Called to be saints. A lot of times that word saints we think as you know, some human being who's been, you know, venerated in some way. And so, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, there's a lot of saints, saint this, saint, saint that. And the fact of the matter is that the word saint is a word that applies to all who are believers. It's okay, the person sitting next to you is a saint. I know you don't believe it, but the person sitting next to you is a saint if they know Christ as their personal Lord and Savior. The Greek word is hagios. It just means one who is consecrated, one, one who is set apart now unto the Lord. So we're all saints in the truest sense of the word. You don't have to die to become one. You already are one in a biblical sense because you belong to Christ. So to all in Rome, we're loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a common introduction of Paul's in the letters that he writes, grace and peace. By the way, it's in that order. They're twins, often written together. Grace was the common Greek greeting, charis. Peace was the common Hebrew greeting, shalom. And so together it greets both Gentiles and Jews. Grace and peace. Ten times Paul begins various epistles with that phrase, grace and peace to you. Peter uses that phrase twice in his epistles. John uses it once also in the book of Revelation. Grace and peace. Verse 8, he says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is being reported all over the world. Now stop and imagine that. How far does your reputation for being a follower of Christ go? Who knows that you are a follower of Christ? In a day when there was no information technology like we have today, their faith in Jesus was being reported all over the known world. Their reputation for being devoted followers of Christ was well known around the world. When I read that in my studies, I, it just challenged me. I just thought, you know, here's this church that has a reputation around the world, and I took it personally. I'm not taking it corporately like, you know, is our church as Cornerstone known around the world? That's not, that's not what challenged me. What challenged me is on a personal level is, you know, when, when people meet you and they know you, when people meet me and know me, does my reputation for Christ precede me? Is it known about you? Is it known about me that you are a follower of Christ? Whether or not people like it or not, is it just a reputation that you have? The reputation of the church at Rome was that around the world, people knew about their devotion and their faith in Jesus. And verse 9, he says, God, whom I serve with my whole heart in preaching the gospel of his son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times and I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. Now notice again his example of a prayer life. He says here in a couple of ways. He said, in my prayers at all times, he says, and I pray. And so, you know, he's a praying man, that we should be challenged to be more praying people. He's a praying man here. He says he's, he prays for the church all the time. And and one of his prayers is that God would open a way for him to be able to come to the church there in Rome. He has a desire to be with them and to minister with them and to share with them. But he's going to leave that up to the Lord. But he's a man who prays. It's another point that I'm challenged by. Just between verses 8 through 10. It's like, well, who knows that you're a Christian how much do you pray? All right? If nobody else is convicted, the Bible study is just for me. Verse 11. He says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I plan many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have had among The other Gentiles. Of course, he's speaking about a spiritual harvest. You know, he looks forward to the opportunity of seeing great fruitfulness in their fellowship. And so, you know, he just wants to be a part of that. He says, you know, I long to come to invest in you, to plant the seeds and, and for God to give the increase and to see a harvest uh, as a result of the ministry of the church there. He says in verse 14, I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I'm so eager to preach the gospel also to you who were at Rome. And then verse 16 he says here this often quoted verse I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes first for the Jew then for the Gentile for in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last just as it is written the righteous will live by faith. And then just a little bit of verse 18, and then we'll backtrack. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. All right, let's back up, because I want to just break down between verses 16, 17, and 18. What we understand that he says here concerning the gospel are three things. First, that the gospel is the power of God. That's verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of it. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Now, again, along these same lines of taking these things personally, I hope that when you read your Bibles, you're reading at it, not detached, but I hope you're putting yourself in the scene and you and you ask yourself, all right, Paul's challenging the people at the Church of Rome, you know, and I should receive the challenge myself. So, you know, back in verse eight, it's like, well, who knows about my reputation for following Christ? And then how much am I praying in verse 10? Well, now here it comes to verse 16. How much are we ashamed about the gospel of Jesus Christ? Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, but there will be plenty of people who will push back because of your devotion to Christ and because your love for his word. And Paul says here, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And friends, listen, this is something that all of us need to consider because there's probably been a time or two in all of our lives when given the situation, we don't want to feel embarrassed, awkward, uncomfortable, or the odd man out. And so we, in essence, either don't say anything about our faith, or we, even worse, pretend we're not a Christian because we're ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ.
1: We're so glad you joined us for this edition of Cornerstone Connection, as Pastor Gary Hamrick teaches through the book of Romans. If you'd like to hear this message again, or others like it, feel free to visit our website at cornerstoneconnection.cc. You can also download our mobile app so you can have these teachings with you on the go. That way you'll never miss a message from Pastor Gary's studies, and you'll always have encouragement from God's Word at your fingertips. Find a link to download the app for your iPhone or Android device at our website cornerstoneconnection.cc. Simply look under the Teachings tab. While you're there, feel free to take some time to learn about the church this radio ministry originates from, Cornerstone Chapel. We'd be happy to meet you. You'll find all you need to know about service times and other information on our website. Again, that is cornerstoneconnection.cc. We hope and pray that you've been blessed by today's teaching in the book of Romans keep reading on your own in this book to discover many other inspiring and motivating things. Pastor Gary will continue teaching through the Book of Romans on our next edition of Cornerstone Connection.
2: They say you're a wandering soul That you've got no place to go But still you know still you know. You're not alone